In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. In my previous life, as some of you know, I was married to a Lutheran pastor, uh, a white woman who was very committed to inner city ministry. She served an African-American congregation at the corner of 3rd and Philadelphia in Detroit. Uh, We lived just a few blocks from there, and I did a reverse commute to our uh, predominantly white congregation in Birmingham. Now, neither Sue nor I were originally from this area, so as you can imagine, since most pastors get to know their communities through the eyes of their parishioners, uh, we each got to see very different perspectives on Detroit and on our history. Sue uh, was perhaps the most dedicated culture broker I have ever known. That is, for a white person. Because, of course, this is one of the examples of white privilege. Um, You never have to deal with a culture other than your own if you don't choose to. It's sort of like speaking English. You don't have to learn another language if you don't want to. You just expect everybody else to speak yours. Not true, of course, for persons of color who have to learn to function in a predominantly white world where whiteness is not even considered a color, but rather just normal. So Sue was a rare, dedicated, white culture broker. But one day she said to me, I was driving down uh, the street, I think this was in Detroit, And I saw some white people coming out of a store. And I caught myself thinking, I didn't know that was a good store. Hmm. Now, where did that come from? She was, with every bone of her body, trying to go against cultural norms. Uh, She was way ahead of even the most progressive friends and colleagues of mine in her commitment to justice and to racial reconciliation. So where did that come from? It came from someplace deeper than her intentions or even her awareness. And to understand that, it's important to recognize the difference between prejudice and racism. So prejudice is about our intentions. It, it, it functions at the level of our awareness. If you are white, you likely know people who are prejudiced. They are members of your family or friends. Some of them are quite proud of their opinions and feelings. They feel justified in holding them. Others sort of confess them to you. I say sort of because while they acknowledge those feelings, they also sort of expect you to go along with them as though, you know, there's really nothing they can do about them. But racism is deeper than our intentions or even our awareness. It works something like this. I'm driving along in my little car and I'm tuned to an oldies but goodies station. And all of a sudden, a song comes on from my era. doesn't matter if it's rock or Motown. 
It, it doesn't matter if I haven't heard it for two decades. But just a few measures get played, and I can sing every word of that song. It's taking up all of this space in my mind I'm not even aware of. And that's how racism work. it's, works. It's so deep that we're not even aware of it because it is embedded in our culture and our history, in our educational and economic and even our religious systems. Which shouldn't surprise us as Christians, but it does. Because in the Bible, sin is never just those personal things that I do, the drinking or the lying, or some of you grew up in families where that included dancing or card playing. But sin in the Bible, sin with a capital S, is always something bigger than that. Sin is anything that gets in the way of my relationship with God. And according to Jesus, anything that keeps me from loving my neighbor as myself. That's why we baptize little babies. Often people will say, why do you ba baptize a baby? They haven't done anything. Because baptism isn't about what they have done. It's because inevitably growing up in our society, you drink the water of this world. You learn racism and sexism and all of the other isms. Jesus didn't give his life because of some little thing that you had to think up on your way to the confessional booth to tell the priest when you were a little kid. He died for something much bigger than that, something deeper than our intentions or even our awareness. That's why Paul writes to the Romans, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I do. Because Paul understood that he was contending against what he referred to as the principalities and powers of his day. Forces that are bigger than any of us and yet in and among us. Forces that have the power to divide and destroy us. That's why it is never okay to think about religion, to talk about religion, as so many Christians today do, as merely a private affair, as though it's just between me and God. Because in the Bible, faith has always been about me and God and my brother or sister. So in the earliest chapters of Genesis, you remember the Lord says to Cain, who has murdered his brother, he asks, where is your brother Abel? And Cain responds with a question of his own. Am I my brother's keeper? And the whole rest of the Bible, you see, is God's response to that. Those who seek to make religion purely private are always seeking to keep the status quo, always. Racism is America's original sin. But Jesus said, I have come to set you free. That's why it's so important to understand what is meant by systemic racism. 
couple of weeks ago, I think I surprised some of you on our Zoom coffee hour uh, by asking uh, if anyone could give examples of systemic racism or of white privilege. And of course, I have been thinking about that over the last couple of weeks. So, for example, outside the state capitol building in Georgia, there is a huge statue that is dedicated to John Brown Gordon sitting atop his horse, dressed in his Confederate uniform. Gordon, who later went on to lead the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia, he referred to it as a brotherhood of peaceable and law-abiding citizens. Now, there are many in our country, and certainly in Georgia, who would insist that that statue should continue to stand there because it's an important part of our history. But is it not a shameful part? After all, Nazism is an important part of Germany's history. But they don't erect statues to Adolf Hitler anymore. Auschwitz is a museum dedicated to reminding Germans and the world, never again. Systematic racism. In Wisconsin just a few weeks ago, and more recently in Georgia, uh, the news was filled with pictures of black voters who had to line up for hours in the midst of a pandemic. In Georgia, also in the midst of pouring rain in order to vote. The Democratic governor of Wisconsin had attempted to postpone the election there, but he was overridden by the Republican legislature. So lines in predominantly black neighborhoods were ridiculously long. In Georgia, voting booths failed. People were improperly trained, again, primarily in black voting precincts. Do you think that was an accident? Why is it that you and I can vote absentee? And yet, though there is virtually no evidence that absentee voting produces voting fraud, whatever our president may say, others are denied that right. There is no system more essential to a democracy than voting. Systematic racism. Two weeks ago, 60 Minutes covered the story of the Greenwood Massacre. It happened in Tulsa back in 1921. Ever study that in your American history class? Me neither. A black man was being held in custody for assaulting a white woman in an elevator there. Some black World War I veterans arrived at the jail to protect the man because others were threatening to lynch him. That was followed by armed white men who came and attacked those vets, and the whole condition spun out of control. Some 300 black people were killed. Over 1,200 homes were burned to the ground, along with the only black hospital. Only one white hospital even took in the injured black people. To this day, a search goes on for mass burial graves. Not one person was arrested. Not one insurance claim was ever paid. 
Why did I not read about that in my American history class? Why should a student grow up in Berkeley and not be taught that the Grand Dragon lived here in Berkeley? Or that Reverend Van Loom, the founding pastor of Berkeley Community Church, was abducted by the Klan? Systematic racism is about what we teach and what we fail to teach to our children. It has found its way more insidiously into some of the institutions that many of us revere and look to safeguard. In the 30s, for example, Social Security helped to ensure a stable old age for many Americans, including many of us. But did you know that originally it excluded all domestic and agricultural workers leaving two out of every three black Americans out. Following World War II, federal mortgage lending programs helped many white Americans to build homes, including many here in the Berkeley area. But black Americans faced a catch-22 because federal policies said that the very presence of a black resident in a neighborhood reduced the values of the home there, and so effectively prohibiting African Americans from borrowing money to buy a home. There is a straight line between those policies and the state of black America today. It's about how wealth is and is not passed on in America. The average black family today earns 64 cents for every dollar earned by the average white family. The net worth of the average white family is about $81,000 compared to $8,000 for the average black family. The average black household is worth about $17,000 compared to 10 times that for the average white household. If you are looking for examples of white privilege, you need only look honestly at the numbers. Of course, if you mention white privilege in a group conversation, could be a dinner party, could be a Sunday morning coffee hour, uh, the room will likely grow silent. Many white Americans won't say anything simply because they don't want to seem racist or because they really don't understand what we're talking about. But every person in, of color will know exactly what's being talked about because they have experienced things on the other side. The numbers don't lie. But numbers alone don't tell a story. In fact, we hear enough of them and we just blur over. So here are a couple of pictures um, that will uh, paint uh, a little more of an idea of white privilege and what it looks like. Frances Kendall tells this story in her book, Understanding White Privilege. During a corporate diversity training session, she typically describes differences in daily life experiences for black and white folks. Apparently that day, some of the white participants were not convinced. I'll let Frances finish the story. She writes, During the lunch break on the second day, two people, uh, a white woman, Debbie, and a black woman, Josephina, 
both went shopping. By chance, they turned up in the kitchen department at the same store and bought similar rugs. The black woman got into the checkout line first. The white woman was two people behind her in line. The black woman took out her American Express card to pay. The salesperson took the card and then asked for two additional pieces of ID. After the sale was rung up, she handed the woman the sales slip and said, now be sure to keep this accessible because the guard will want to see it as you leave. The black woman said thank you and left to come back to the training. When we resumed after lunch, Francis says, the white woman raised her hand. Okay, she said, I get it. Josephina and I both happened to go to the same store. And then she described the events. After Josephina left, it was my turn. I handed the salesman my American Express card. She rang up the sale. She rolled the sale slip up in the rug and put it in a bag and handed it to me, wishing me a good day. She didn't ask me for any more ID. She didn't warn me about the security guard who didn't even notice as I left. I would never have believed it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. David Esterline, the dean of the faculty at McCormick Seminary in Chicago, writes this. In the midst of a class I teach with two faculty colleagues on racial identity and white privilege, we paused to hear a sermon by an African-American pastor. He encouraged us to pray for the safety of our children, especially in the face of gun and police violence and described how he prays for his own kids every night after they go to sleep. The next day in class, the sermon was mentioned, and I told how every night I too stop by my sleeping daughter's room and say a prayer. But I never pray for her safety. She is white. I'm not afraid for her safety. That's white privilege. Of course, if a picture paints a thousand words, a video clip, clip does even more. So here is one that you may have seen about a conversation that most of us have never had to have with our child. Listen. We actually have a line that we do at our house. We practice this thing. What is it? I'm Ariel Sky Williams. I'm eight years old. I'm unarmed and I have nothing that will hurt you. That's just kind of a thing we practice at our house. There are great police officers out there. There's also some police officers who are not so good. And my fear is that you run across one of those bad ones. For some reason, people of color have always been a target by the police. Before they became a policeman, they were a person. And that person took all their ideas and all their thoughts and all their prejudice into their job. Why, why would a police officer assume that you did something bad? Maybe because of my skin color. 
I remember being put in handcuffs for something that had nothing to do with me. I was literally walking in the mall. Cops slammed me on the ground, busted my lip, chipped my tooth. That actually made me really mad. How about the time they pulled us over with me in the car and arrested me and left all of you guys sitting in the car and nobody knew how to drive on the side of the road because the bumper on the car was kind of hanging off? No. You know we live in Piala. There's people that don't even have a bumper on their car. My rear brake light wasn't working and I got to my destination and they were working. I was about your age, actually. They grabbed me. Why? I didn't know at the time. They just grabbed me. They threw me onto the police car. I got tased that time. That time they tased me because they said I wasn't complying. Ariel, are you okay? <laughs> What's wrong, baby? I'm okay, I'm alive, all right? Every day I get to see you, I get to do this, right? All right, come on, let's calm down, let's finish this, all right? You good? Hey, you're making me cry. Come on. I think there are lots of people out there, people like me, people with good intentions, who are not only unaware of their own power and how it works in the world, but also at some level are more than content to keep it that way. Because that is true, it is our job, white people, to acknowledge those power dynamics. Not just a few bad apples out there, but the systems that we create and perpetuate and benefit from. This is hard work. It means doing our homework. It means reading the work of multitudes of voices out there who are different than my own. It means listening and learning from people of color. And it means finding our voices. A couple of weeks ago, Kathy and I were at a Black Lives Matter rally over here at the high school the woman's sign next to me was very succinct and to the point. It read, suburban silence equals racial violence. Make no mistake, what we are dealing with here is the principalities and powers bigger than any of us in and among us. Time to open our ears. Time to find our voices. Amen.